I've waited so long for you to pull my trigger. Hello, my name is Will and you're listening to Exploding Helicopter, a podcast that no one could ever accurately subtitle as professional. Now, computer-generated imagery, or CGI, is a commonplace feature of many of the films we watch today. But back in the early 1980s, that technology was still in its infancy, as filmmakers explored the possibilities it offered. So on this show, we're rewinding back to 1983 to take a look at one of the first movies to harness that new technology. Not only that, the film was the first animation to incorporate CGI within it. So the subject of this show is the Japanese anime Golgo 13, The Professional. To help me, I'm joined by a man who's been carefully reproduced in digital form using only the most cutting-edge computer technology. It's Nick Rehack from French Toast Sunday. How you doing, buddy? I am doing great, Will. How are you? Yeah, I am doing very well. Thanks for uh, thanks for making yourself available to uh, come on the Exploding Helicopter podcast uh, once again. But uh, we are here talking about a Japanese anime. We don't often talk about uh, animations on the Exploding Helicopter podcast, so that's always an interesting experience. But uh, the kind of theme of this film, I mean, this film, as we'll kind of dig into a little bit later, is all about an assassin. And I wondered, given the the nature of this particular film, what kind of assassin would you be, Nick? Would you be an impassive, cold-blooded killer? Or would you be one of those assassins who suddenly become susceptible to an attack of conscience and find themselves unable to pull the trigger? I think I'd be a a bit of both. I think at first (laughs) I would have like the problems and the conscious and the morality, but the more I would do it, I would become very cold-blooded. And then I think I would get to a point where the morality comes back, like, you know, I've been murdering and slaughtering for 30 years. What have I become? Who am I? <laughs> really take a deep, hard look. And then I'm like, I'm going to do one last mission. And then mm. not really. They pull me back in, you know, something like that. That's a pretty good career. I mean, if you think you get through 30 years of cold-blooded killing before you start having another attack of conscience, I, you know, I, I think that's a pretty good shift you're putting in there. It's, you know, someone's got to put in the hard work, and I'm not afraid to do it. (laughs) Now, as I say, we are talking about a film where the title character is a assassin. And so that also made me wonder, what is your favorite film about an assassin? I I went digging through my brain and uh, looking at my film collection, but I think right now it honestly has to be the John Wick films. Uh, They're just so fresh in my mind. The third one just came out, so I rewatched the first and the second one to kind of re-up on it. And I really like Keanu Reeves as John Wick. He kind of has a code that he sticks to. He's not real flashy. He's not trying to, you know, win you over in any way, shape, and form. He's just showing up. He's punching the clock. He's doing the job, and he's punching out. And I feel like a lot of times they try to paint assassins as like these cool, like, uh, you know, socialite figures and they're betting all these girls and look at all the cars they drive. And, yeah, that happens in John Wick where he's driving all these different cars. He's got the cool, you know, weaponry and everything. But there's something about him where he just remains distant and he's like, you know what, I'm putting business first. None of this is personal. And he just goes from there. Mm. Uh, have you seen the uh, third film? And if you did, what did you make of it? I have seen the third one. I enjoyed it for the most part. I felt like it got a little overlong. Okay. Um, and, and then part of me, because uh, some of the cast had also been in the raid, so there's a couple fight scenes where I'm like, oh, we could just, I could just go home and watch the raid, or I could, <laughs> I could hope for like another raid movie to come out. And there's nothing wrong with that, but hmm. 
I feel like at times the film was kind of becoming goofy and kind mm. of comical, whereas the first two were a little more grounded. So I hope that, you know, if there's continues to be iterations, they kind of pull back, make it a little more realistic and not go the, you know, fast and furious route where all of a sudden it becomes absurd and they're yep. like racing on a submarine or whatever they do in those movies. Just keep the realism there. Well, I think that uh, that's the trouble with sequels is that very often they feel the need to like add more and more and to, and to better the previous films and they end up gilding the lily and they end up adding stuff that perhaps doesn't need to be there and I don't know my my fear is that they probably are not going to go in that direction that you want them to do of, of keeping it lean and mean. Oh, no, absolutely not. I think they're going to continue to get more over the top. I think we're going to see a lot more big names in the film, be it as cameos or full-fledged characters that we spend more time with in the film. Uh, I just hope that, I don't know, it, it just becomes a little, just a little more, I don't want to say grisly, but a little more just umph to it and a little more punch instead of like, I just felt like there was a lot of comedic fights and comedic deaths when it shouldn't have been that way in a John Wick film. Mm, you see, because I have not seen the third film. I've seen the first two. I enjoyed the first one. I wasn't bowled over by it. I didn't particularly like the second film. I enjoyed it uh, less than the first film. I felt that the they were kind of the, the world building stuff that they were doing. I just felt that that it did for me. It didn't really actually add anything. The mystery and the unexplained things of the first film you know the whole business with the coins and the hotel and what right. are the rules of this world i actually found when that was left ambiguous it was more interesting because it was like a creative jumping off point for your mind whereas when they started fleshing some of that out in the second film it's like i didn't want this explained well then you might want to take some time going to see the third one because <laughs> they explain a lot more one one thing they do explain is really creative, and you don't realize that what they've actually explained until the scene has passed, and you're like, oh, okay, that's really cool. I don't want to say what it is because I don't you know spoil or anything, whatever. But uh, they do go into a lot more of that world and that lore. And part of me was a little disappointed, like you, but another part of me was like kind of just fascinated by it all. So, well, talking of people explaining things, let's get stuck into uh, Golgo 13 and. Uh, Let's listen to someone explain the film very, very simply. Leonard Dawson is the richest man in the world. Powerful people make enemies. If an enemy becomes a problem, someone calls the professional. Codename, Golgo 13. Target, former Nazi SS captain, Bernard Mueller. I'll take the job. He never kills for sport. He never misses the mark. And he never gets involved. Can't you let this one go? But this time, it's personal. The hunter has become the hunted. Because this time, he's the target. We found Golgo 13. He's preparing to shoot, sir. Duke Togo, codename Golgo 13, is a stone-faced, ice-cold killer for hire. Amoral and expressionless, he is known for always getting the job done, even against the most impossible odds. That's why he is hired to kill the son of a wealthy industrialist named Dawson. 
But after successfully completing that mission, Duke takes on another contract against a Sicilian mafia boss. Meanwhile, Dawson targets Duke to avenge the killing of his son. This begins a chain reaction of murder and revenge as uh, Duke fends off the mafia and corrupt US government agents, all the while having to deal with an increasingly bizarre array of assassins hired by Dawson. Whilst all this plays out, there remains one unsolved question. Why is Dawson so obsessed about hunting down Duke rather than the person who hired him? The character Golgo 13 is based on a long-running Japanese manga series of the same name. In fact, it's the longest-running manga still in, in publication. Uh, the film is the third screen adaptation of the character. There were live action films made in 1973 and in 1977, but this was the first time that uh, Golgo 13 had been animated. Uh, and and the, uh, the character has continued to, to live on in other media uh, since this particular adaptation with uh, uh, video games and with uh, an animated television series following in the uh, subsequent years. Golgo 13 has a user rating of 79% uh, on Rotten Tomatoes and a 6.8 rating on IMDb. But uh, all that is by way of background. Nick, what did you make of uh, Golgo 13, colon, The Professional? I enjoyed it. Uh, it definitely caught me off guard. I, I really dug the aesthetic. I loved the visuals of it. Very 80s, very heavy on the 80s. Um, <laughs> but I don't know. There was something about it that just kind of drew me to it, even in some of the more intense moments in the film, both violent and sexual. There was – I guess the way it was presented – was just really, really interesting. It felt like the entire time I was reading a comic, or in this case, a manga, and and it captured it in a way that I don't know. It just I felt like I knew when chapters were ending. I knew when things were picking up. I just I don't know. It felt so familiar yet so foreign at the same time. I don't know if it's a film that I'm going to revisit a lot, like other animated films or or other animes for that matter. But it's definitely something I'm glad I saw. And it's something that I can see other films have kind of like piggybacked on or drew inspiration from, which is also kind of cool. Well, it's interesting what you say about the familiar aspects, because I, th I think certainly whilst this is a, a Japanese uh, anime it's based on a Japanese manga series, a lot of the elements within this film will be very familiar. I mean, there's there's definitely a, a, a noir styling to a lot of this film, mm -hmm. the kind of the essential plot elements about uh, an assassin who's hired to do a job. He's double-crossed and then finds himself being pursued by other forces because of the job that he's just been committed to do. I mean, that's that's a kind of essential plot outline that's been done a million times and, and is still being done in countless uh, straight-to-DVD films. But uh, despite all of those kind of very familiar sort of genre trappings, uh, there are some really strong elements here that I appreciated about this film. So I thought it had a really intricately plotted story and... You know, which actually sort of took me the some of the the plot twists in here. I, I you know, we're actually really surprisingly good, and I just thought there's some big budget movies that could do with some of these uh, story ideas uh, very very badly. Absolutely, and there's times where I'm watching this film where I'm like, oh, okay, you know, uh, Drive drew from this, or okay, Kill Bill drew from that. But then another part of me is like, who could direct this? Who could adapt this now? What could they change, make it a little more palatable for American audiences, or ramp it up even more for American audiences, uh, <laughs> and and for worldwide audiences too? But just to see 
you know, who could play this character? Um, who would you cast and how would you go through just all these different things and what the possibilities were. But yeah, as you said, like it's, I wish the plot was a bit, or maybe not the plot, at least the writing and the acting a bit stronger mm. to make it more of a contender. Whereas, yeah, there's some elements and twists, like you say, I feel like are kind of wasted and they could be put on a different kind of medium. And I think they would have greater success there. Yeah, because the plot is really good, but some of the dialogue in this, and maybe that's just down to translation, but some of the, some of the dialogue in this is appalling. I mean, it's, it's so characters just explaining very, very obvious things, which uh, you just think, oh, please give us as the audience <laughs> just a little bit more intelligence to be able to, to follow what is going on. And also, there is uh, the voice actors in this film or in this dubbing, um, because I was watching the, the English dubbed version. The voice actors in this film are they're just uh, I, I mean, I looked into their careers. They're just basically people who make a living doing English dubs for Japanese animations. And mm -hmm. they're clearly not the greatest voice actors um, out there. And uh, yeah, I, I feel that that hurts the film. I think if the, some of the dialogue was a little bit more a little bit more creative and some of the voice actors you know if you've got some got some big name actors maybe that would lend a bit more depth and potency to some of the stuff that we're watching here absolutely uh, i watched the japanese version with subtitles because that was the only one that i was able to get a hold of and while there's a real poetry and a beauty to the language i just when when you read the words and you're like oh that's what they're saying like it really it really falls flat and it's just like like you said it feels almost like they're over explaining the situation like oh famed assassin duke what are you doing here in california <laughs> have you come to hunt me down and my family like it's just not good yeah it's really lacks uh it really lacks some imagination in those particular elements but uh the other thing that i found a bit of a barrier to really getting into this film was actually the character of golgo 13 himself because he is this stoical expressionless emotionless killer and you know, we've seen those types of characters in movies and, and you mentioned Drive where you've got Ryan Gosling who's playing mm -hmm. this very impassive character in, in that movie. But somehow, I think when, you, when, when you're watching a live action film, when you're watching an actual actor, there's, a, there's an X factor at work there where the charisma, the wider personality of the actor, even if they are not necessarily doing a lot in their performance, somehow that can be projected or you can project onto it when you're just watching a flat animation and you're being presented with a character who is you know somebody who's not presenting much emotion it can feel a little bit flat and i kind of struggled a bit to really get into the golgo 13 character no it absolutely feels flat and sometimes when he's just standing there stoically i wonder okay is this his character is this who he is or are they saving money <laughs> and just reusing the same cell or have they just animating... forgotten to animate him yeah exactly and they're just animating the background to make it look like he's doing something uh a lot of that crossed my mind in this film and also visually with this film i i don't know if this is intentional or not there's a lot of shadow in the film there's a lot of darkness mm. in the film a lot of just maybe in the center there's a silhouette and they're doing something and again i don't know if it's a budgetary constraint it adds to an extent to the visuals and it kind of gives it 
um, I don't want to say noir, but definitely a darker tone mm. to the film. But sometimes I'm like, I, I want to see more of this world. I want to see more of what you think California looks like in the 80s. I see a lot of the San Francisco, you know, Golden Gate Bridge area, but I'm not seeing the rest of it. I'm kind of interested to see what you think it is. I mean, one thing I thought as I was watching this film was as somebody who is new to this character, who hasn't seen the previous iterations of the Golgo 13 character on screen, I haven't read the, the mangas, you know, maybe... There is an element of familiarity which the the makers of this film are assuming that you bring with you as a viewer to this this particular film so that actually, you know, when you're being presented with this impassive, cool, professional character that, you know, we're seeing on screen in front of you, maybe actually, you know, you don't need to be introduced to him you don't need the backstory because actually you're so familiar with him you're i don't know filling in the blanks you're coloring in the 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 missing bits which are uh, not maybe not presented for the benefit of you know somebody who's completely new to this character i can see that i can definitely see that but i also feel like they do enough of a setup job with the opening scene where he assassinates this character getting off of a plane he's just very boom i did my job and i'm gonna go home and to me, that tells a lot about the character. And then we go into this bizarre PlayStation 1 video game opening cinematic that just feels so out of place and kind of takes you out of the film. And then you have to get back into it. And you're like, oh, OK, here we are with this assassin character again. Now he's in a different setting. He's going to do the same thing. But maybe something will happen and he'll react differently. Very possibly. Um, but I think the trouble is then that that just it just leaves us with as a viewer if you are coming to this new with just not a lot to not a lot to latch on to and it's true yeah i mean you you've got it, it's very clear that he you know you've got this character he's he's an ultra professional he's cold he's calculated he's dedicated to his his craft but there's a there's a fine line between demonstrating those qualities and just coming across as just impassive and inscrutable in a way which is not terribly interesting rather than rather than a way that is intriguing that's fair i mean you even had a moment in john wick where you know he he's so reserved and he doesn't want to come back but then he finally goes into the basement busts up the concrete and gets his gear back out we don't really have that moment with duke we just kind of have like you said just this flat this is who i am this is who i'm going to be for the rest of the film there's no emotional connection to him we're just kind of going through the motions with him well let's talk a little bit about the the style of this film and we've kind of mentioned it a couple of times already i mean i definitely picked up on a noir vibe in this in this film we meet the the golgo 13 character duke togo uh he's wearing a, a classic trench coat that which you the sort the sort that you would have seen Humphrey Bogart wearing in some sort of 1940s film noir. Um, some of the music during those sections is uh, very sort of late night jazz, very saxophone heavy. So there's definitely <laughs> there's definitely a very strong noir you know vibe in there. But it's more tinged with that. I mean, it's certainly not like say something like Sin City where the entire creative outlook of the film is subsumed within that sort of very uh, you know that very sort of neo-noir sort of vibe I and mean, what did you make of the of the style that we got here the style really kept reminding me of lethal weapon the first oh. one but lethal weapon didn't come out until what 87 88 yeah 
So how can one look and feel so much like the other? Like you said, it was this was very jazz, very saxophone heavy on the soundtrack, which really <laughs> threw me off. Was it the saxophone uh, that was giving you the Lethal Weapon vibes? A little bit, yeah. <laughs> and I was expecting, I guess, a little more like pop or electro with it being in the 80s. But then you get this very like almost borderline 70s yacht rock vibe. And all of a sudden, I'm like, okay, so how am I supposed – like it's putting me in a different position than I thought I would be. Like it almost throws you off a little bit, keeps you on your toes. But then the aesthetic is just so clear-cut 80s and relaxed, almost almost like a Miami Vice. Mm. And I just feel like they kind of clash with each other, and it, it doesn't mix just right. Visually, it's gorgeous. I dig the soundtrack, but the two just just miss each other. You know what I mean? They're right next to each other, but they don't quite meld and form together. What did you make of the the animation that was uh, that we get to see here? I mean, from my perspective, um, I would describe it as as fairly rough. Although I, I certainly I think that's fairly rough by the standards of today. I don't certainly don't think that there's. I think the animation uh, style is in keeping with what you would expect from or what you saw from uh, things of that particular time period. But I, I think some of the frames definitely felt like I was looking at sort of frames from the manga being animated how did that particular aspect strike you i i like that style of anime where it's slightly rough i'm a big big fan of akira that didn't come out for another five years after this film was released but i i've always enjoyed that style one thing that did trip me up though was some scenes move by very slowly and mm. i don't know if it was a rendering issue and they just kind of kept it in or what but there's some scenes where it almost feels like like you're watching a VHS and all of a sudden it kind of slows down and warps a little bit and then picks back up. Um, it doesn't feel timeless like a Disney animated film would. But at the same time, it doesn't feel super dated like, I don't know, like a Ralph Bakshi film would where you're watching like, you know, Lord of the Rings or Fritz the Cat or even Wizards. It feels like it's its own style, but it fits within that 80s aesthetic. And going a little bit broader now, I guess, thinking about the tone of this film, I mean, you've already alluded to the fact that it, it felt very 80s. And this film is very violent. It's also very sexually graphic. I mean, what did you make of those particular elements of the of the film? I was ready for the violence because, you know, I've seen other anime before and I know how violent they can be. I think some of the blood sprays and the blood rainstorms that we were getting, uh, <laughs> that kind of threw me off. But after a while, it kind of just became commonplace because it felt like every time they killed somebody, it wasn't just a subtle trickle of blood. It was just like kind of like Tarantino film. It was just here's let's just get as many buckets as we can and dump it and just cover everything in blood. Mm. Um, the sex scenes really threw me off. The first one, I'm like, okay, he's maybe with a prostitute or a sex worker, and he's, you know, unwinding after a hard day <laughs> of murder. You need to but, you need to talk to me more about how you relax after work, Nick. <laughs> but, but then there's this weird, almost like softcore porn vibe we get mm. with Rita. Where Rita's like, hey, I got you this car all set up. And he's like, let me pay. And she's like, no, you don't have to pay me, but I want you to pay me with sex. <laughs> and and then they have sex, which like it's also kind of really cool how they did this scene. It reminded me a lot of the night fight yeah. in uh, – oh, why can't I think of it? It's just in the tip of my tongue, Skyfall, where it's just the black silhouettes and you see the city in the background and they're fighting. 
this way they're having sex, mm. but you just see the neon lights of the city. So it goes from being kind of softcore porny to, and I guess this gets into like quasi spoiler territory, when it gets to like Snake and when he has sex with, I believe the character's name was Laura. Yeah. All of a sudden it gets really intense, really disturbing. And to me, it's one of the most disturbing uh, rape scenes I've ever seen in my life. I've seen a lot of rape in film. Not proud of not proud of that statement, but I've seen a lot, <laughs> and and none of it has disturbed me to my core like this film did. Like it is truly yeah. like disgusting on levels like borderline like Salo 120 Days of mm. Sodom levels. Like really just intense and gratuitous. And what sells it? I mean, not that it needs to be sold, but what amps it up and makes it that much more intense is Laura's expressions and how she's dead behind the eyes. And we just have these little subtle tears coming out like it wrecked me. And I just felt so disgusted at the same time. And I wish that I had felt more emotion or at least a more gut reaction to the rest of the film like I had with that scene. But unfortunately, that's the scene that they decide to throw the most emotion into. But it works because it's so disturbing and it's so... And I hate to word it like this. It's just so well done. It does a really, really good job conveying that disgust. That is really interesting because if there's anything that I dislike in a a film, it's it's a rape scene. They invariably make me feel really, really uncomfortable. And (laughs) I do think a lot of rape scenes in films are often just there for titillation. And that just makes them just uh, that just makes them even worse. And. Uh, but this one, um, it's really interesting to hear you have such a strong reaction to this one. So, you know, because despite my own sort of sensitivity to those those particular scenes, I didn't have uh, such a strong reaction to to the scenes that we that we saw here. I mean, I did think that they were, um, uh, you know, I did think that they were unpleasant. I did think that they were that they were strong, and I did question quite were they as necessary to the detail that we saw them in i don't know i'm just interested in quite why you had such a strong reaction to this those particular scenes in this film i think it's the lead up to it i think it's there's this character snake and he's begging dawson like just let me have her just let me have her and he's just kind of gives in and he's like fine and then she's in this room by herself and all of a sudden boom he do just appears mm. and albert's locking the door behind her and the guy's like yeah i want some tea and they just walk away from the situation i think walking away excuse me and then hearing a couple like screams in the background and cutting to another scene that would have been effective as is but to push further and to not let your mind wonder but to force it to you and say like this is what he's doing to her and to watch her reaction and how she fights and fights and then just gives up like that just it runs it it runs a chill down my back and it's just it doesn't sit well with me like it just it feels so gross and and violating and disturbing to me and it just i don't know it just it gets me it grabs me and again i've seen other films where it's supposed to be a little more intense it's supposed to be as gut-wrenching but some other ones i've this is going to sound terrible but i just find them boring you know what i mean (laughs) i find them like there's no reason for this scene there's no need to have it let's just get through it but this one we don't need it because we know Snake is a disgusting guy, but it just adds to that level. And I think his face and his mouth, it's like just makes it more creepy and disturbing. But it just it really, really grabbed me. OK, I think we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to be looking at the exploding helicopter action. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Cinema Recall podcast here at ThatMomentIn.com. 
I am your host, The Vern, and on each episode, myself, along with a guest, we'll be talking about an iconic scene from a classic movie. Which films will we be discussing? Well, that's all up to you, because before each episode airs, we are going to be giving you a poll of great flits to choose from. Whichever one gets the most votes, that's the one we'll be talking about. So, listen to the Cinema Recall Podcast on the site thatmomentin.com, or on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or Podomatic, or SoundCloud. Thank you very much, and hope you enjoy it. We're back, and now we're looking at the exploding helicopter action. This occurs as part of the film's finale. Golgo is trying to reach Dawson, who is holed up in the penthouse of his supposedly impregnable skyscraper. In a bid to finally kill the troublesome Golgo, Dawson has called up a squadron of attack helicopters which open fire on our assassin as he is making his way up the building. One of the helicopters comes in too close during one of its attack runs and crashes through the window of the building. It comes to a rest inside the skyscraper for a few seconds before it suddenly and violently explodes. Nick, what did you make of the exploding helicopter action? I thought it was really interesting that they decided to go with the CGI element in the film. And it was neat to see something so well produced for its time. Mm. Um, I think nowadays a lot of the CGI that we saw today would have been like filler for today's work. They're like, hey, this is like a rough estimate of how the scene's going to go. And then they apply the textures and the filters and everything we see. It felt a little cartoony and video gamey at times. But ultimately, when the helicopter explodes, it's back in the 2D animation style. And I was a little disappointed because I kind of thought we would get to see more of an exciting CGI explosion. Let's see what we can do with this. But we're kind of left disappointed. And the way in which the helicopter just kind of loses control and crashes into the building, that felt a little, I don't know, just felt a little too clean, like a little too nice to tidy up. Here, Duke is this master assassin. I kind of thought he would pull off like an insane shot mm. or an impossible shot, something that kind of sets the guard off or does some kind of maybe domino effect with the helicopters to cause a big explosion. But we don't get that. It's almost like, hey, here's this really cool thing that we can do. And let's tidy up and get back to the film. And it almost feels like there's no need for it. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a couple of elements here. I think in the terms of the the the, the mechanics of what actually leads to the helicopter explosion, I do think it is as you were saying, it is slightly underwhelming in the sense that you've got this squadron of uh, helicopters that are uh, attacking this skyscraper, and you know one of them for no discernible reason just flies too close to the skyscraper crashes through the windows and comes to rest inside the skyscraper before it before exploding and you know that could have been more imaginatively staged with uh, golgo pulling off you know he's a master assassin you know he could have been pulled off an incredible shot to shoot out the the pilot of the of the helicopter at a, at a critical moment on his attack run but as you were saying, suddenly the film, which has been in 2D animation, when you see this helicopter attack run, it flips to CGI. So you see this squadron of helicopters uh, attacking this particular skyscraper and all of that is produced in CGI. And it actually fits in reasonably well, I think, with the with the animation style that we that we've seen before. It, it's clearly different, but it's not a million miles away that it is overly distracting and so yes cgi um, is used as part of this um, exploding helicopter sequence but i guess if you're being very particular 
um, this isn't the first CGI helicopter explosion because the helicopter that we see explode is just a flat 2D animation. And it kind of bums me out because it could have been so much more. They could have done so much more. And I think one thing that bothers me even more than that is the floor he is on, there is nothing there. It's Mm. just this big empty floor. If you've got this big mega tower, what are you doing with empty floors? They could have put anything in there, and that could have added to a more creative explosion. Say it's, I don't know, an office setting for maybe his accounting firms or something like that. He could have very easily run in there, uh, somehow put a fire extinguisher on a uh, chair, like a rolling chair, shot the end of it as it goes flying off into the distance like a propelled missile. All of a sudden it blasts through the window, (laughs) strikes a helicopter – Boom, you got a massive explosion. But instead, he just kind of lazily falls into the building, and he's got all the room in the world to kind of jump out of the way. It's not like he's pinned up against Mm. something. There's no real danger there. It's just kind of like, oh, he just has to move. (laughs) 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 And and that disappoints. But, yeah, pulling it back to a 2D explosion, I mean, yeah, it looks fine. It looks like any other 2D exploding helicopter. But I really, really wish we would have gotten that CGI explosion. Well, it raises the question, and it's one that you know I am now duty bound to explore: is what is the very first uh, CGI helicopter explosion? Because we very nearly got it here, but obviously we didn't. We get the we get the first animated helicopter explosion, but we don't get the first CGI one. So uh, I will have to uh, continue my my research in search of that particular history making explosion. I mean, technically. Uh, Wings of the Apache, those were some CGI helicopter explosions when he's in the mm. virtual simulator. Yeah. But are we counting that or are we counting a helicopter that is digitally inserted into a film and then blown up? Ooh. Well, I I think I would want to keep them all separate. Mm-hmm. So I think Golgo uh, 13, the professional, first animated exploding helicopter. Mm-hmm. You know, Firebird's Wings of the Apache, first computer-generated exploding helicopter. You then need a separate category for one that is computer-generated and then inserted into a film. Because for, for listeners who haven't seen Firebird's Wings of the Apache, in that film you have Nick Cage. He's in a helicopter simulator and he's flying around inside this, this helicopter simulator blowing up uh, other helicopters, other aircraft that are all rendered in computer graphics. So all these um, explosions are taking place within a wholly computer graphic generated environment. So yeah, I think you know you're you're very lucky here, Nick. You've you've been uh, you've been a guest on uh, and witnessed you know some uh, very historic um, exploding helicopters here. I've been very fortunate, and I don't want to speak it into existence because I feel like as soon as I say I've been here for a lot of historical firsts, it'll stop happening. So I just <laughs> I just keep to myself, and I'm like, oh wow, that did happen. But secretly, there's a tally, and I love it. <laughs> Okay, I think that just about wraps things up for this show. Nick, thanks for joining me once again. Do you want to take a minute to plug yourself online? Absolutely. You can find myself at FrenchToastSunday.com. I say this all the time. Something is going to happen at some point, I promise. (laughs) 
maybe when this episode comes out, we'll actually have some episodes going. But we're in a group chat. We're talking about getting the band back together. It's going to happen. At this point, it feels more like a reunion than a continuation. But we shall see. Uh, if you'd like to more of my thoughts and opinions on film, obviously previous episodes of this outstanding podcast. But you can also check me over at the Lambcast over on largeassmovieblogs.com. As always, don't forget to check out our website, explodinghelicopter.com, where we've just posted a, a new review of, uh, of a film where we take a look at uh, another film about an assassin, the, uh, the film Hitman Agent 47. Otherwise, we will be back soon. But until then, keep watching the skies for those exploding helicopters. This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com.